Welcome to Sermons from Bailey Road. You are about to hear a sermon given at Bailey Road Baptist Church. Bailey Road is a small Bible-believing church located in North Jackson, Ohio, and is pastored by Pastor Aaron Smith. We are dedicated to serving the Lord through our people and through our teaching. We hope you are enlightened by today's message, and again, welcome to Bailey Road Baptist Church. How many got a good Baptist nap this afternoon? All right, good. How many plan to get one right now? Okay, I gotcha, I gotcha, all right. Well, we're glad you're here tonight, and thank you for taking the time to come, and I trust the Lord will bless you. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4. I was sharing with the Sunday school class this morning that I'm going to preach a few sermons from 1 Samuel, a couple from Mark. Uh, These are some studies that we are in at our church, and I feel like if the messages have helped our people, uh, then they will certainly help you, and I trust it will be a blessing to you. And I did travel neighborhood Bible time. I traveled it when I was in Bible college, and I'm sure your pastors told you about it. It's an evangelistic team that uh, travels around the country, different Bible colleges and Christian colleges where they recruit guys to come and labor for the summer. And uh, it's, it's a great opportunity for young men. And they're uh, young and full of energy, and so they come in and they can help a church kind of get things organized and kind of be a spark plug in there. And uh, it's, it was a real blessing. I was glad I had the opportunity to do it. My particular summer, I traveled one week in Colorado, two weeks in Washington State, and five weeks in Michigan. And, um, you know, there's a lot of sinners in Michigan to get saved, that's for sure. And so I was there uh, working, and uh, it was a real blessing. I remember it. We, me and my partner, we saw, uh, the, the number just can stick out, we saw 599 professions of faith in eight weeks of travel. And it was a great, great time. I'll never forget it. And it really helped me uh, tremendously in ministry. And so I'm glad that you guys are having that. And I hope that you'll be a blessing to these young men that will come in because they're going to work to be a blessing to you and to the, the kids of your community. But you have an opportunity to be a blessing to them too. And there were so many kind and gracious people uh, that uh, I met in my summer there. And so it was great. Well, I uh, also want to encourage you. I know it's kind of a new season of ministry for you. You have a new newer pastor, been here just a little over a year, but man, it's been quite a year. Uh, it's not the only pastor I know that came in like Brother Smith and his family came in and COVID hit. Yeah, I have another friend who took a, a kind of a church replant, a fledgling church in the Cincinnati area, man had pa- uh, planted it, got it up off the ground, it was doing pretty good, and then that uh, pastor left for a variety of reasons. And they had a hard time finding another pastor. They were still meeting in a storefront. And a friend of mine took that church right, I mean, literally, I think it was two, maybe three weeks at the most before everything shut down. And uh, really, really challenging issues. And uh, I'm glad that your pastor is here, and I hope that you'll rally around him. You know, I'll tell you this. I, I've, I've pastored for a little while. I'm not a, I'm not a novice by any means. I've pastored three different churches and God's blessed every one of those churches. But I can tell you one of the common denominators in that is when a people loves the man of God and encourages and supports him, God will bless that. He always does. He always blesses people that uh, care for his man. And I'm not talking about worshiping a pastor. I'm not talking about deifying a man. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's a beautiful thing when a people and a pastor work together for the cause that God has given them. God can do some great things, and I've seen it firsthand, I've seen it in others, and I've also seen it not work when people are always bucking and pulling and the pastor's, you know, lording over God's heritage, it it, it just never works. But when you do it God's way, 
Uh, it's a beautiful thing. So I want to encourage you in that. First Samuel chapter 4, though, I ask you to turn there. I want to pick up reading in verse 12. I hope you don't mind standing one more time. I know you stand, stand and sit a couple times, but let's stand and read God's Word together. I love the Bible. I do. I just love the Bible. I hope you love it too. And in verse 12, I want to pick up a story that you may or may not be familiar with. What has taken place is the nation of Israel is having trouble with a group of people called the Philistines. These are the enemies of God that show up regularly in the Old Testament. And uh, by the way, you're still kind of seeing that uh, take place today. Doesn't the word Philistines sound a lot like Palestine or Palestinians? Same kind of group of people, and they're still fussing and fighting with one another. And the Philistines were attacking Israel, and Israel decided, you know what, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. We'll put that in front of us. And basically, they were trusting in a little box to deliver them, and it turned out to be a mess. That's where we pick up reading. It says, And there ran a man of Benjamin, verse 12, out of the army, and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with the earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli, this was the high priest, sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? Remember, we'll find that Eli did not have good sight, so he didn't really know what was going on, and he's asking, What's all the commotion about? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now, Eli was 90 and 8 years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that come out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? I mean, I can see him say, okay, it doesn't matter who you are, tell me the news. And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. I want to preach to you tonight a little bit about faded glory. About faded glory. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would fill us with thy spirit. Help me as I try to communicate the truth of your word and your people as they receive the truth of your word. I pray that it would take root in our heart, bear fruit in our life, and I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and that you would help us. Help us to not allow the glory of God to depart from our life and our ministry. Help us to learn from this tragic situation so that we can benefit from others' mistakes. And God, if the glory has departed in our life and our ministry, I pray that you would bring it back and that you would help us. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. I appreciate it. You may be seated. You know, it, it seems to me like we're trending away from traditional names. I mean, I, I'm not seeing as many anymore, you know, in our church and ministry. 
Uh, you don't see a lot of Davids or Sarahs or Michaels or Marys. It's kind of we've trended away from uh, what we would might in our culture consider uh, traditional names. In fact, uh, your pastor's family, we were having lunch together today, and they were kind of complaining about their middle names, you know. And uh, I think, I think to, to fix it, you should just call them by their middle names for the next entire week or something. But anyway, uh, there are some unusual names out there. I remember when I was a youth director, there was a kid that came in our youth department, and he was a visitor. He didn't come regularly. He came with a, a, a girl that was very faithful in our, our youth ministry. And when I met him for the first time, I said, hey, man, what's your name? And he said, Spike. I said, all right, Spike, good to meet you, buddy. And, you know, I got to talk to him. I said, but... What's your real name, you know? He said, no, that's my real name, Spike. And he, and he was, he, he literally took out his driver's license and showed it to me. His first name was Spike. I mean, like, like his middle name was something like David. It was, it was a kind of a normal middle name, but his first name was Spike. I said, all right, dude, you're going to have to tell me. I mean, how'd you come about having a name like Spike? There's got to be a story to that. And he said, well, I was born very premature, and uh, they weren't sure if I was going to live or not, and so I did live. And I mean, he was, a, you know, had no ramifications from that on. He said, so my mom and dad said if I was tough enough to survive that, I deserved a name like Spike. And so that's my name. I said, all right, that's kind of cool, cool story. I was coaching basketball. I coached uh, basketball uh, for our Christian school. I coached the varsity team for, for several years and then had a son. And as he grew up, I started coaching his team. And it's a real, I, I thought coaching varsity ball was a little bit difficult, but coaching 10-year-olds is real difficult. And we had community ball, and uh, I got the number one pick in our community. That's the way they did it. They had a draft system, and you had evaluations. You got the number one pick, and I got the number one pick, and it was clear who, who the number one pick was. This kid could play some basketball. When I said, what's that guy's name? And I got to talking to him. This was literally his name, and I'm not making this up. His name was Po' Boy. And I, I said to him, I said, is that your name? He said, yeah, my name's Po' Boy. I said, does your dad like the sandwich or something? And he, he didn't have any clue what I was talking about. Huh? He said, just call me Poe. I said, okay, no problem, man. So that, that was his name. Uh, I heard of a, a set of twins recently. Their names were Bo and Arrow. I thought that was kind of interesting. And I also have heard, under present circumstances, of a couple that named their twins Corona and COVID. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Here in our text, we are introduced to an unusual name. We are introduced to a boy who is born, and he is given the name Ichabod. Now, I have heard that name outside of the Bible, and maybe you're thinking of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Maybe your mind goes there. That's the only other person besides this Bible character that has the name that I know of, of Ichabod. I'm sure there's somebody else out there somewhere, but I personally have not met them. This word Ichabod is a significant name. Remember in the Bible, uh, people named their children with significance. They didn't just pick something they thought sounded cool. They didn't necessarily use a family name, although they might do that. They had significance. For example, my youngest daughter, her name is Mary, but we did not spell it the normal way. We spelled it M-E-R-R-Y, like Merry Christmas. And we did that just because we liked it. Uh, but the truth is, is it kind of fits her personality. She she's, uh, tends to be a little more optimistic kind of a person. I remember when she was being potty trained, we had some apple juice at dinner. And uh, I didn't, I, I, she was having a little bit of a difficult time 
with her potty training. And so it was kind of a treat for us to have apple juice. And I, I, she, said, she looked at the table and saw apple juice. And she said, she clapped her little pudgy hands. She said, yay, apple juice. And I thought this was a great moment as dad to do some training. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Only people, only people who are potty trained can have apple juice. No apple juice for you. And she clapped her hands and she said, yay, water. I thought, oh, man, you got me, kid. One for the kid, none for the dad, right? And uh, that's just kind of Mary, and and it kind of got that uh, uh, name identification there. Well, this young man's name was Ichabod, and that word means inglorious. It means there is no glory. Now think about it. A lot of times in Christianity, we throw around words that we use on a regular basis, but we don't necessarily understand exactly what they mean. For example, grace is a word that I hear used a lot in Christian circles, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about what grace really is and what it's not. And glory, I think, is one of those words. I just want to bring glory to the Lord, or we talk about the glory of the Lord. What exactly are we talking about? Well, it means honor, it means splendor, it means magnificence, it means praise. If we talk about the glory of God, we can talk about the the total sum of all of his attributes. And so these are ideas about the glory of God. But in this context, what she's saying is the splendor of God has left our nation, it's left our people. Why did she name him this? Why did she feel that the glory of God had departed? Well, if you study the context leading to this, God's people were regularly losing battles. They should have been winning battles. Remember, we are more than conquerors in Christ. We should be uh, on the winning side on a regular basis. Listen, God did not save you and design you and redeem you to fall prey to your sin. That's not what God wants for you, and it's not what has to be. The nation of Israel is this way. They were regularly losing battles. Israel was also abusing and misusing the holy things of God. Remember, the context is they they went and got the Ark of the Covenant. Understand what the Ark of the Covenant was. It was just a little box. That's all it was. It's about four feet long, maybe about two feet wide, two feet deep. It wasn't very big at all. It was a wooden box overlaid with gold. The top of it is often called the mercy seat. It's a lid that had some golden angels on the top of it. And this box was just kind of symbolic. We do this a lot in Christian faith. That's what God wanted us to do. There were different things that he would use to symbolize truth and significance in life. And, and so this box symbolized the presence of God. It was not the presence of God, but it symbolized the presence of God. It's where the presence of God would visibly come down and meet with the nation of Israel. But rather, like what can happen to us sometimes, rather than appreciating its significance, they began to kind of idolize and worship and use that box. And they thought, surely, like a good luck charm, like a, like a talisman, they could take it out and lead them in front of their army into battle. And surely they, they would win because they have this Ark of the Covenant. They were mistaken because they put their trust in a box and not in God. And so they were using the things of God in an inappropriate way. And I'm going to tell you, I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but a lot of times God's people, even in Christendom, use the church or they use different things in their Christianity that, that, that are inappropriate really, not what they're meant for, and that's what happened here. Sinful men also were overseeing the work of God. If you know anything about the context, Hophni and Phinehas, they were not good guys. They were committing immorality, 
They were after greedy gain, and they were using the ministry to meet women and to make money, and they were, they were just some scoundrels is really what they were, and that's what was going on in the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. The, the, the enemies of God no longer respected God or his people. There was a time the people of Canaan heard the stories of what Jehovah did, and they, they were terrified of God. That is all gone now. And Israel has seen firsthand the judgment of God fall. And she, this woman says, I'm telling you, the glory has fell from us. It's faded away from us. It's departed. It's gone. You know, there are many forms of glory in life, and many of those forms fade in time. I want you to think about it. Uh, the glory of a building, if you don't maintain it, will fade. You have some beautiful facilities here. You've got a lot of room, a lot of space, good parking lot, nice sign out front, a, a, a nice, clean environment. But I'm telling you, when this was built, man, I, I guarantee you there was an exciting time when this church celebrated. I've been through building projects. It is exciting when you move in, and man, it's brand new, and everybody is thrilled at the size of it and the beauty of it and all of that. But I'm going to tell you, the most beautiful building in all of, of, of church life, if it is not maintained and it is not taken care of, it will fade in time. That's just the way it is. I want you to think about somebody's beauty. You know, somebody can in their youth have a lot of beauty, and, and, and again, over time, it can, it can change and it can fade. And a lot of times, somebody's wealth can fade in time. It's, it's just the way things happen. Somebody who was a great athlete, I, I, I've, I've been around sports a lot, like to play a lot of sports, and I'm telling you, the old body doesn't do quite what it once did. And that's why my dad used to wear a t-shirt. The older I get, the better I was. And man, I'm entering that stage. My mind knows exactly what to do, and it just can't quite tell my feet and my hands to do it, you know, and it's just the way it is. You fade in time. And I'll tell you, there's a whole lot of overweight men these days. All the hair has departed from their head and joined in their ears and their back. And they're talking about what great high school quarterbacks and football players they were. Let me tell you, the glory has departed. You all understand what I'm saying tonight? You see, truly, this was an inglorious time in Israel's history. The glory had faded. It had gradually grown faint and it had disappeared. Now I'll tell you, when the glory departs, it is something that is gradual. It's not instantaneous. It, 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 let, let me just say this to you tonight. Drift is never good. I mean, no, nothing ever drifts into good stuff. Like I, I mentioned, you don't, you don't drift into wealth. I mean, you don't just wake up one morning and look in your bank account and go, Whoa! Well, maybe you do when stimulus checks comes out. But, but other than that, you, you just, what? I got a million dollars in my bank account. No, you don't drift into wealth. You, you drift into financial trouble. Uh, you, you don't drift into health. As much as I would like it, I've never woken up and gone, whoa, I got a six-pack of abs. You, you don't drift into health. In fact, you, you kind of drift the other way, don't you? A little bit added in the waistline here and there, and, and things drift into being unhealthy. That, that's what happens. Well, the same is true in our spiritual life. You do not drift into spiritual I, I don't know anybody that's ever woke up one morning and gone, Whoa, I'm spiritual! Now, you think about somebody that you know and you value their spiritual life. I'm going to tell you that's somebody that's done that intentionally, and they did not drift into it. 
They worked into it. And here you see that she's saying, listen, they have, we have drifted away from the glory of God, and, and, and they got into a bad space. And, and I'm telling you tonight, drift, it, it, it's never a good thing, and it, it always starts in small things. It starts with reading your Bible a little less than you did. I hope I'm preaching to people tonight that you read your Bible on a regular basis. I am amazed at how many Christian people do not read their Bible on a regular basis. And Jesus himself said, listen, you are, men are not to live by bread alone. You're sort of live by, the, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If we say we love this book and we believe this is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of our God, then don't you think we ought to pay attention to what God said? And we got 66 books here that I ought to, man, when I get done reading it all, I go back and read it again and read it again and read it again because I can't, we've all done this before. Man, I've read that before. I never saw that before. Why? Because you've got to keep reading it and keep reading it. But you know what? What happens is sometimes we just kind of get out of the habit. We drift away from it. We stop reading our Bible like we, what, like we once did. We, we, our heart really isn't into worship. I wonder how many times we sing songs and never think about what we're saying. We've sung it so many times. We know the words. We just kind of say it. We drift into that. We, we drift into just hanging on to a grudge, coming a little bitter. We, we, we step down from service. I'm telling you, as a pastor, I get so nervous anytime somebody says, well, you know, I'm just going to take a break from this. Not because you don't need a break sometimes or not because you need to move into a different area of service, but I've just seen people drift away. They just kind of abdicate a little bit of their responsibility and they move away and they move away and they move back. Listen, as a pastor, I get real nervous. I'm not against people sitting in their normal spots. That's good. You can kind of keep track of people. And I got them just like you do. I got them. I know where they sit. And I'm telling you, though, if I don't see them on a Wednesday night, I kind of get worried about that. Because you start missing a Wednesday night here, you start missing a Sunday night here, and before you long, you're not even in church anymore. That's called drift. That's exactly what happens. And we can drift in our attitude. We can drift by getting discouraged. We can start focusing on our own preferences instead of on what God really wants. And, and I'm just telling you, Israel was in a state of spiritual drift, and the glory started to fade. And if we're not careful, we can do the same exact thing. We can start being in a state of spiritual drift, and before we even know what happened, the glory is gone, and we're sitting around going, wait, 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 what has happened here? How long has it been like this? Because we, we didn't even realize it. And here's what Israel was doing. They wanted all of the blessings of God, but they didn't really want to follow God. And that's silliness. It's foolishness. We can say, hey, I, I want a certain, I, I, I like this food dish. Well, in order to get the food dish that way, you've got to follow the recipe. And there are a lot of people that want God to bless their life, but they don't want to follow God's recipe. They don't want to do what he said. They don't want to follow him the way he told us to follow him. They don't want to put in the work and the time and the diligence and the effort to receive the blessings of God, but they want the blessings of God. I'm going to tell you, that's just, that's just asking for drift. So I, I want to just point out to you tonight, I want to point out two contributing factors to fading glory. Two contributing factors to fading glory. Number one, remove God's people and the glory will fade. Remove God's people and the glory will fade. I want you to look at verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory is departed from Israel. Notice this, because the ark of the God was taken, and because her father-in-law and her husband. 
She considered the death of the priesthood a step in the wrong direction. Now, I know you might be saying, but yeah, but Eli, I mean, if, we were, if, if I were going to poll the audience tonight of whether Eli was a good priest or a bad priest, I think we'd probably get mixed reviews. I, mean, I think if I was asking, was Samuel a good priest? We'd say, yes, yeah, Sam, Samuel was a good one. We can give him a thumbs up. Eli, I think you could probably do this right here. I mean, he wasn't altogether horrible. I mean, you read about him, but, but there were some things that were not so great about him. Now, if I were to say Hophni and Phinehas, I mean, good or bad, I mean, that, that's immediately, if you know your Bible, thumbs down. These guys were bad news. And here she's saying, because my husband Phinehas and my father-in-law Eli are departed, man, th th this, this is a step in the wrong direction. And I think that that's interesting that she mentions that. Again, Eli wasn't perfect, but he was in a sense God's man. And the thought that I'm presenting to you tonight is that she was making a statement that I think the Word of God just kind of uh, teaches all throughout it, is that there is a need for other people no matter how imperfect they may be. That's the point I want to make to you. There is a need for other people no matter how imperfect they may be. I think I said it this morning, and I'm going to say it again. Ever since the beginning of Christianity, congregations have congregated. That's what you do. Study sometime in the New Testament how many times they assembled, they gathered, they got together. That, that is essential to, to Christianity. Now, now, I've heard people say this, and they try and get kind of cutesy. Well, uh, you don't go to church. You are the church. I'll tell you, if you read that in a book, that sounds very clever, doesn't it? I mean, that's articulate. That's, wow, you really put together a, a, a structured sentence that is very clever. You don't go to church. You are the church. And I think sometimes we hear things that have spiritual sounds to them and don't think them all the way through. Here's what I would like to say to somebody that says, you don't go to church, you are the church. I would say this, you can't be the church if you don't go to church. Now, I get it, I, I get it completely. I don't care if you meet in a storefront building under a tent, in somebody's carport, somebody's living room, or you have a nice facility. I, I, that, that, I get it that the church is not bricks and mortar, but I'm telling you, you can't be the church if you don't, you can't be a called out assembly if you don't assemble. Pardon my snarkiness, but I like to get snarky every once in a while. Listen, I guess I'm, I'm probably meddling in some waters, and I'm not trying to beat your pastor tonight, but I'm telling you this right now. You cannot reduce church to listening to an audio CD or a, a podcast or watching it online. You, I, you cannot do that. You'll never do that. Now, I'm not chiding somebody that's watching on live stream tonight. If you are truly concerned about the virus and you haven't been vaccinated or whatever your situation is, that's fine. But you cannot say, well, I'm just going to stay home and have church in my living room. You, you'll, ne you'll never be able to do that. Never. Because God intended for Christianity, the church, to be a community. Listen, being a church is singing with others. I don't care how bad the singing is. It's singing together. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have been in church. Listen, I'm the pastor, and sometimes I don't feel like going to church. I hope that doesn't bother you. 
But there are times I'm like, man, I, you know why a lot of people cancel church on Sunday nights? You know why pastors are doing that? Because they want to stay home. And I know it's true. I've been sitting on my porch on a beautiful day like today, reading a book, thinking, man, I don't want to go back tonight. But can I tell you something? As much as I, our, our church, we've got wonderful music, and I'm thankful we have an orchestra, we've got a big choir and all that kind of stuff, and it's a blessing. I mean, it's ministered to me over and over again. But you know what ministers to me more than hearing special music or hearing a choir or hearing our orchestra play? You know what blesses me more than any of that? Congregational singing. I'm telling you, there is something about God's people raising their voice together, singing as one choir. Do you know that God intended for us to do that? Listen, I used to pastor in California. I pastored in Southern California, just right outside of Los Angeles. Our, our church was unbelievably multicultural. And we had, we had people from all over the world. And do you know that I would probably dare say the majority of my congregation, English wasn't their first language? And I want to tell you right now, when we got together, we would sing in English. But it was awesome to hear people that English wasn't even their first language to sing with one voice to the same God. And it was a little bit of taste of heaven on earth because we're going to get to heaven someday and there's going to be a congregation that congregates and we're going to raise our voice in praise. Every tribe and kindred and tongue is going to sing to our God. Do you understand something? When you don't associate with God's people and sing with God's people, you are drifting away from the glory of God. We were designed and saved and redeemed and called together to sing together, to pray for one another. I, I guess we all have our own little corny jokes and sayings that we have, but uh, our church is, is like yours. We got a lobby area, and in that lobby area, there's some seating, and a lot of times there's a group of men that they're always hanging out before service, sitting on those couches. And a lot of times I walk up to them, and I'm like, well, fellas, have you gotten the problems of the world all solved tonight? You know, and they're sitting around jawing about politics or sports or whatever it is they want to talk about. But you know what I remind our church sometimes is, listen, that's okay to talk about the game, who won what, and slap each other on the back and tell corny jokes and do whatever we do. But listen, we ought to be praying for one another. It, not, it ought not be uncommon at all to see brothers, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ praying for one another on the premises of this place. Jesus said, my house ought to be a house of prayer. You can't do that if you're not congregating together. Can I tell you this? You ought to hurt together. The Bible says that you weep with those that weep. You know, the Bible likens our, our, uh, the church as a body, doesn't it? You know, when one part of the body, you ever bit your tongue? The whole body feels that. You ever, you ever do you say it this way? I always say this, stub your toe. You ever stubbed your toe? You ever stubbed your pinky toe on the end of a piece of furniture? Those of you with kids, you ever stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night? The whole body aches. We ought to be weeping with one another. And by the way, we ought to be rejoicing with one another too. You can tell a lot about somebody's character, about how they respond when somebody suffers and when somebody succeeds. Well, it serves them right. Yeah, you, you, you don't understand the church. Well, I don't understand why they got that. You, you don't understand the church. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those that weep. We come together. We befriend one another. Do you know the world has expectations of the church? Did you know that? You know one thing the world expects the church to be? Friendly. Listen, I got five kids. When I travel, it's the funniest thing. When we go on vacation, I don't take a vacation from God. We still go to church when I vacation. You can do what you want to do, but that's what we do. And, and, and I still dress up. And so when we come walking in, when you walk in with five kids, and they're in church dresses and 
ties and suits and all that kind of stuff, and you come walking in, people notice that. You, you don't sneak in the back when you're a family of seven like that. And you can see churches going, ooh, a prospective visiting family. And it's funny to me, they'll come up to me and say, well, what's your name? And I'll say, well, I'm, I'm the pastor over here in Anderson, South Carolina. And they'll go, oh. <laughs> no, this guy's not a prospective candidate. But you know, I'm going to tell you right now, I have gone in, and maybe you have too, I have gone in churches with my big old family, dressed, dressed for church, Bibles under their arms, come in and sit down and have nobody talk to us. In fact, what they do is they look at you and go, who are they? What are they doing here? Are you kidding me? I'm just telling you that we ought to be friends with one. I think people are looking for friendly churches, and they are looking for friends at church. We need to be befriending others, struggling with others, involved with others. And I'm just telling you tonight, and I've got to hurry, but when we get away from that, our glory begins to fade. I want to get a little preachy for just a moment, but I have seen people go everywhere over this last year and a half, but church during a pandemic. I have seen them post on social media how they were at parties and they were at family gatherings. They could get out and go to the restaurant. They could go to dance class. They could, they could watch ball games in crowded gyms. They could go to the beach, but boy, they couldn't go to church. And then we wonder why the glory is departing in our nation. It's left the church a long time ago. I've seen people exclude themselves from the group and then claim that the group has excluded them. I'm going to remind you of something. You want to get wet, you got to get in the water. You know, i got people that come to our church, and we have a very friendly church. I have people that come to our church, they come in late. And when they come in late, they sit in the back, or they sit in the balcony. And then I'll, I'll just finish saying amen and they're out the back door and then I'll go and visit them and say hey we're glad you've been coming to the church well your church isn't very friendly you come late and you leave early and you don't talk to anybody we don't even have a chance to catch you to be friendly to you what are you talking about you can't exclude yourself from the group and then claim the group has excluded you, you if you're going to get wet you've got to get in the water my wife grew up in Alaska, and we go visit her family. It gets cold in Alaska. You know about cold up here, don't you? Uh, my wife's family always seems to have a, a stove, a wood stove. And, boy, when you're up there in the winter or something like that, boy, and they got that stove piping, boy, it's just, it's just kind of fun to, I don't know what it is about humanity, but we like to back up to it. I stand, you go outside to get something and come back in. Man, I like to stand next to that wood stove and feel that heat come from by. Listen, can I, can I just tell you something? You want to get warm? You got to get near the fire. And, and that's the point of the assembly. Can, can I tell you something? Too many of us come to church saying, well, what's the church going to do for me? What kind of programs you got for the kids? And I'm not saying we shouldn't have programs for the kids. I'm not saying we shouldn't have things to offer. But what's this church going to do for me? Do you have people? Here's what I say all the time. Do you have people in our peer group? Well, I might if you stick around. Y'all quiet tonight. That's okay. But, but wait a second. Can I just tell you, can I adjust your attitude a little bit about the need to be around each other? 
it's not about everything that you need. If you stop to think for just a moment, somebody might need you. And when somebody's not in their place, not only are they missing out on what they need, they are, they are taking away from what others need as well. Proverbs 27, 7 says, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. We need each other. Have you ever stopped for a moment the difficult people? Have you ever stopped for a moment and thought the difficult people in your life you need? I'll just say this and I'll move on. I, I have seen so-called spiritual leaders cancel meeting opportunities claiming it'll be helpful for families. Our country doesn't need less church. It needs more. And this nonsense to say, well, we're going to cancel Sunday night church so people can be with their families. They're not with their families. They're going picking up extra hours at work. They're watching TV. They're, they're, they're mowing the grass. They're carrying on doing all kinds of things. I can't think of anything better for families than sitting in church together and hearing the word of God taught. I, I just can't. And I don't understand so-called spiritual leaders I, I don't know about you. I've grown up in church. I, I'm telling you, God has blessed my life. And I can't imagine that spiritual leaders would cancel Sunday night service when I consider all the blessings that I've enjoyed on Sunday nights. In fact, it's a direct violation of what the Bible says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. We don't need less meetings together. We need more. And I'm not talking about running everybody ragged and just draining every last ounce of energy out of you. I, I'm, I'm just saying that that's what the Bible says. I'll tell you a story, and I'll move on to my last and final point. There was a man named uh, Randy Frazee, and he wrote a book called The Connecting Church. And in it, he told a story that was pretty interesting. He has a, Randy Frazee had a son that was born without his left hand. Just never developed. He was, he was born that way. Never had a left hand. And one day his son, who was younger, he was a kid, and he was in Sunday school. And the Sunday school teacher was a well-meaning lady, taught, taught the class. And she was trying to teach the kids about the church. And so she was teaching them. If you've grown up in church, you, you remember this little thing. You remember, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple open the doors and see all the people. Like, you, you know, it, it's, it's cheesy. I haven't seen it in years, but growing up in church, I, I saw that little thing that you teach little kids in nursery. Well, this well-meaning lady said, she was teaching them about the importance of the church, and she said, all right, everybody put your hands together like this, and we're going to do it, and she started leading them. And she was, she was about all the way through that little thing when she realized, oh, man, I've got this boy sitting here that doesn't have a left hand. She said, but about the time I recognized what I was doing, I looked over there, and that little boy had a friend that was sitting next to him and said, let's do it together. And they had put their hands together, and they, he, his friend was using his left hand, and the boy that without the left hand was using his right hand, and they did it together. And you know, that teacher immediately recognized and said, wow, this is an exercise that should never be done again by an individual because that's what a church is. It's a collection of individuals. or I mean, it's not a collection of individuals. It's a body of Christ put together. And this, I thought it was interesting that this lady said, even though these were imperfect people, she said, we've lost the people of God. And you just remember that. You've heard it before. If you find the perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. There is no perfect place. We, need, we are an imperfect people that are a part of God's perfect plan. 
Let's remember that. Number two, I've got to show you this and I'm done. Remove God's presence in the glory of faith. So you remove God's people, you've got a problem. You remove yourself from God's people, you've got a problem. But if you remove God's presence, the glory is going to fade. One of the mistakes that God's people made here was to believe that the presence of the ark guaranteed victory. It didn't. And they lost the ark and the fight because the Lord does not guarantee his blessed presence to disobedient people. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant's presence was symbolic, but also was losing the Ark. That was symbolic as well. It was a sign that God had left them and that they were now left to fend for themselves. Now, as we consider the idea that God had departed from Israel, you've got to keep a couple things in mind. Let's get theological for just a moment. First of all, when the Bible speaks of the Lord departing, it does not mean that he's no longer present in any sense that a place that he has, he has totally left. Because the Bible says that, that God is... We learn this young. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Remember Psalm 139 and verse 8. The psalmist said, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. And you might say, well, I thought, man, isn't God absent in hell? No, no, God's very present in hell. It's just his wrath is present there for all of eternity. So, so understand that theologically. When you say the presence of God has departed, God, God is still omnipresent. We understand that. Uh, here's the second thought. Even though the Lord could be said to have left Israel, that doesn't mean that he left everyone. Because remember, God always has his remnant. Always has his remnant. But what, what it's talking about is the idea that God's blessing and favor had been removed. You know, God's presence and blessing did eventually return after the people, we'll, we'll see this in chapter 7 and verse 2, they lamented after the Lord and God brought his presence back. But what we see is that his temporary presence or temporary absence was not without consequence. So I want to ask and answer very quickly. What happens to churches when God removes his presence? Yeah, they begin to die, that's for sure. Here's what I've observed. Disunity begins to rise. You look at the church at Corinth. It had a lot of people in it. God's favor wasn't on that group. Why? They were constantly fighting. Fighting with one another over their own preferences, who they liked, who they didn't like. And they were a very disjointed group of people. I'll remind you again, when God's people are together, following him, it is a beautiful thing. But I'm telling you, I've preached in enough churches, you can walk in some churches and just go, ooh, something's going on here. God's presence is removed. The Bible says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is a gift of God. It even talks about how the snow-capped mountains, it trickles down, uh, the, the water trickles down. It talks about the, remember that, that verse that talked about the, the oil on Aaron's head running down his beard? I always thought, what in the world does that mean? Here's what I'm talking, what I think it means. I think it means when, when you have unity in a church, it trickles down and benefits everybody. Just like the snow cap brings water down to the valley. That oil on the top of the head runs down the rest. Look, when we don't have the presence of God, we lose the unity in our, in our body, in our church. Here's what happens. Selfishness becomes very prevalent. Well, I don't like this and I don't like that. Well, I, I, I'm not trying, I want you to like me. I know we're just getting introduced to each other. But listen, what we like and what we want what we prefer, that's, that's not the issue. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his word. 
When God's, when God's glory departs, do you know what happens? People refuse to change. You know what? I, I, I think I was telling your pastors when we were fellowshipping. You know, a lot of churches really, they really are not interested in growing at all. They just don't want to shrink. And I tell you, if you grow, you know what you're going to have to do? Change. And I'm with you. I, I don't always like change. Change is uncomfortable. We get used to the way it is. That's not the way we that's not the way we've always done it. Well, the Bible talks about from glory to glory, God's changing us. If you want to grow spiritually, numerically, ministerially, you're gonna to have to. I'm not talking about change philosophically or change doctrinally. I'm not talking about that at all. But I've seen people dig in. I've seen people walk into services and plop down in their pew that they always sit in and fold their arms and they have the attitude, well, bless me if you can, preacher. I'd like to see you try. Glory has departed. Boy, I'm going to tell you right now, when you walk in to a congregation that says, lay it on me. I want to hear from God's word today. If there's a sin I need to confess, I'll confess it. If there's a habit I need to change, I'll change it. If there's an action I need to continue, I'll continue it. Oh, God, give me something. I'm telling you, when somebody has that hungry anticipation, boy, I'll tell you, God's presence is thick there. There's another observation I've made. Discipleship and fellowship diminish. Like what our brother said, the church begins to die a slow and agonizing death. I'll close with this. Here's the point I'm trying to make. There is a difference between saying God is everywhere and saying God is here. I know theologically God is everywhere, but friend, I have been in many services where God was there. There have been times I've sat down and I've read my Bible. Again, I don't want you to think less of me. I've read like you. I've read multiple chapters and thought, what did I just read? I've read the Bible before and nothing leaped out at the page and ministered to me. Was God still there? Oh, yeah. But, but I'm telling you, there have been times where I read the Bible and God was there. I'm not trying to be hooky spooky with you tonight. There have been times where I've been alone in a room and I've prayed and I felt like my prayers just kind of hit the ceiling and bounced back down. But there have been other times where I've been in a room praying. And listen to me, again, not trying to be hooky spooky, but I knew God, he was there. He was there. There's a big difference between God being everywhere and God being there. I want to read you one final verse. Psalm 1611 says this, that will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I don't know about you. I want God to be present in my life. So I'm just getting to know you. I, I do value your pastor's friendship. I appreciate his family, his ministry. I'm glad that God and his providence led him here. 
and, and I want God to bless your ministry. I really do. I want God to be here. It doesn't have to be that we say, well, the glory days are over. No, no, no. We can say God is here and God is doing something now. Let me ask you a few questions. Are you individually, are you personally drifting from the fellowship of God's people? You know, in some ways I'm preaching to the choir tonight. You're here. I'm glad you are. I just want to ask you, how important is church attendance to you? It ought to be extremely important. Here's a good question for you. How do you personally contribute to the mission of the church? I mean, do you know why this place exists? It's not a religious social club for you. This place ought to exist so that you go win, baptize, and teach. I mean, again, I'm not trying to pastor you. I'm just trying to help your pastor. He's saying, hey, we need some help with Bible school. You know what Bible school, what you're trying to do? Go, win, baptize, teach. You ought to get involved in that. This place needs you. They need you to listen to verses or pour Kool-Aid or whatever. How do you contribute to the mission of the church? Because every member ought to be a minister. Here's my second set of questions, and I think maybe the most important ones. Do you long for the presence of God in your life? Maybe I'm preaching to people who haven't ever even experienced it. Have you, have you experienced the tangible presence of God in your life? I hope you have. And if you never have, then, then I, I would beg you, come to an altar tonight and kneel and say, Oh God, I want to experience that. And maybe you have, but it's been a long time. Oh God, do it again. And my final question is just this. What are you doing to invoke the presence of God in this ministry? May the Lord help us tonight. Heavenly Father.